I have to say, as I look way out on the horizon and see all you sitting there, it is really, really good to be with you today. And my emphasis is on that with you. I have been uh, rather grateful for the virtual services that we've been able to participate with and, and being with others when we did it, like as Rob's family when we were here and, and uh, Seth's family when they were in Maine. And, and Lord, uh, it has been a blessing. But you know something? It's not altogether real, is it? And so it's great to be here today with all the difficulties that this entails. I, I am grateful for that. Our text this morning is uh, from the first chapter, or is the first chapter, of the book of Daniel. So you can look along if you have your bulletin, or if you're looking up on your phone, or you're just opening your Bible. Uh, let us give attention to God's Word. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the, the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. <clears throat> and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear, my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should you see 
<clears throat> for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then the, the then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief whom the chief of eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for ten days. And at the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the ewes who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four ewes, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of that time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all the kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious Father, as we come now to your word and to its proclamation, uh, we are grateful that it does not just go out because of uh, my skill or ability, for that would be sad. But it goes out because your spirit works in and through the word proclaimed. And so we ask for that work of the spirit this morning and all here. In my speaking, that I would say what you would have me say and understand what you have set before us. And with all of us, that we would hear your truth, your words, your food for our souls, and that we would be encouraged and strengthened and built up in the Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It has, it is good to be with you uh, this morning, but I am painfully aware of the difficult times which we are all going through. It seems like life has been turned topsy-turvy. We deal particularly with COVID-19 how to respond, and it is, causes us great anguish or, or great angst. And it's not just about whether we'll get sick or not, 
but how we respond with others and our different perspectives. Uh, as we look around at our communities, at our nation, and our world, uh, we realize how much division is found. It's not just simply COVID-19. It's the whole issue of racial reconciliation. It is also the problem of the division that is caused so often by politics. I don't know if this morning as you listened to Psalm 137, you felt a, a certain simpatico with the psalmist as you heard his plaintive cry. How shall we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? This question arises in the psalmist's mind from real events uh, that he and others of the Jews are dealing with. God's people, Israel, has been conquered and many of them are languishing in exile in Babylon. And while they are in Babylon, they are taunted by their captives. They are saying, sing for us. What are the songs of Zion? Aren't you people of the, of the, of the psalms, of music, of the temple? Sing for us. And as they hear these taunts, you can well imagine what is going through their minds. Where is our God? What is happening to us here? Is it over? Are we no longer the God's special people? Has that relationship totally been destroyed? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? This is the question of a people in exile, remembering the past glories and the present difficulties. How can we sing a song in a place like this? How can we sing the Lord's songs in times like this? But I don't think that this is just a, a lamentation of God's people from the distant past. Does it not resonate with us today in our own lives? How can this world gotten so far off kilter? How are we to live in times like this? Should we, <coughs> excuse me, should we just hunker down and sort of huddle in a shell defensively? I think the book of Daniel is here for us to answer questions like this, to respond to the psalmist's plaintive cry, how do we sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? And the answer to these questions is seen through the life 
of this young man who has been taken from his own his homeland as a teenager and carried off to another land a place where he will live for the rest of his life in and through the life of Daniel we see that it is possible for the Lord's people to sing the Lord's song no matter where they may find themselves no matter what their circumstances might be. And it is in this context that I want us to think about this biography of this great man of God, Daniel. Though we have to recognize that in the beginning, he is not a man. He's a mere boy, a young teenager. As we look at this chapter, we see three things that were buried deep in the soul of Daniel. And first of all, we find a young man who was conscious of the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, who was shaping his destiny. We begin to see this in verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, Daniel gives us uh, something like a, a split-screen picture uh, of what is going on at this point in time in his history, in, in Israel's history, in what God is doing. You know the experience. Have you ever been in that situation where there are sort of two important elements of reality that in some ways seem in conflict to one another, but unless you understand both of them, you cannot fully understand what is happening. And so we need to take account of both of these events simultaneously. And Daniel does this in verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, he begins to set the scene from the perspective uh, of history. He tells us what has taken place uh, from the human perspective, what you might expect to find written in the annals of history. And we read this in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. It goes on to tell us uh, that Jerusalem was captured by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. The sacred articles of the temple of the Lord were confiscated and carried off to the temple of the gods of the Babylonians and placed there. And you have to realize what's happening in that. It's not just that they were valuable, they were of gold and and silver and, and precious uh, th uh, things. It was also a statement of what the Babylonians believed to be true. Israel's God was now paying homage to Babylon's gods because they had been captured and brought. And in, in symbol anyway, Israel's God was defeated. 
<clears throat> From the perspective of human history, these were the days in which Daniel lived. <clears throat> this is the reason for the lament we find in Psalm 137. God's name has been defiled. The symbols of God's presence have been taken. God's house lies in ruins. God's people are a laughingstock among the nations. Indeed, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? You can well imagine how the hearts of those languishing in the foreign land would have been crushed. But do you see what Daniel recognized as he began to discern the other side of the split screen of human history? The other side, which is always there, <clears throat> though at times the people of God fail to notice it. And I think sometimes we fail to notice it. And I say that because I know at times I do. Written into the histories of the disasters that had fallen on God's people were these words at the beginning of verse 2. <clears throat> and the Lord gave Jeho Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. It was the Lord who gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. The thing that in the midst of this apparent historical tragedy that gripped Daniel's imagination, the thing that I believe ultimately stabilized him in Babylon, was that not even the worst that the powers of darkness could do to the people of God was able to overthrow the powerful hand of God in shaping human history. And in Daniel's understanding, that hand was shaping his own personal destiny. He did not see himself as simply the spoils of war. The thing that grips him in more than one place in this chapter is his sense that God is in complete control of the situation. That God is, as it were, raising up barriers against the shining forth of his glorious name, only to break down these barriers in order to display that he, that he reigns, he rules, even in the midst of the darkness of human sin. And that there will be people of God whose hearts are longing to sing the Lord's song, even in the midst of darkness. I thought about that this morning as we were worshiping together, singing together, and sometimes a little bit out of sync. At least I was. You probably all were right on it. But one of the things that thrilled me this morning was able to be here with you singing the songs of Zion. I've been doing it in my room, and if people were there, they might have been a little embarrassed. 
I felt a little more comfortable this morning, but I was glad to be singing it with God's people, these hymns of Zion. But Daniel is not only conscious of the hand of God who is shaping his destiny. Secondly, Daniel has a unique sense of the powers of darkness and the manner of their activity. He is aware of the world in which he is living. The events described in Daniel chapter 1, of course, are historical events. But like so many other events that are described for us in Scripture, they are all part of a larger pattern on display. And they're on display here in Daniel 1. And the the pattern goes back in the dim, dark past of Genesis, when God is, is calling out a people for himself, when God is establishing Abraham as the father of his people, of his holy nation, through whom the Christ will come. And immediately before God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, in chapter 11, what we, we read about, what we're told about, are that men began to build their own city, their own tower, which would reach up to the heavens and would glorify them. We call it is called the Tower of Babel. Now, if you've never made the connection, probably you have. Babel, Babylon? Yes, they are related words. Not only that, where we think that the Tower of Babel, the general region where it was built, the plains of Shinar are, are where Babylon is, and very likely near where the city of Babylon was. And so in that time, and from that time forward, we read all through the Bible, culminating in the book of Revelation, we read of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. We read of the the city of Jerusalem and the city of Babylon. The book of Daniel is one of the places in Scripture where these two cities come into direct conflict with one another. And Daniel finds himself in the middle of that conflict. He finds himself living in the middle of enemy-occupied territory. And he is conscious of the myriad of ways that city of Babylon wanted to envelop him. The subtle plots to bring him down, to confuse his understanding, and to destroy the testimony of God's grace in his life. The remarkable thing is that Daniel had some sense that his whole life was a battleground between Jerusalem 
and Babylon between the, 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 the powers of darkness and the kingdom of God. Daniel begins to notice the, the subtle ways he was being seduced. What the, 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 the powers of darkness were looking to do. And so we see in verse 5 that Daniel saw the ways that the powers of darkness sought to corrupt him. We read in verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that that the king ate and the wine that he drank. Daniel was to be given the delicacies of the king's table, the finest of wines, the best of meats, in my mind, I was thinking about that. What, did that. what would that be like today? It would be like going to the very best restaurants in New York City every single day. So what is the problem here? What is the corrupting influence? Oftentimes you hear that the problem was that this food had been offered up first to the gods of the Babylonians. But in reality, we find no hint of that in the text, or at least we have find no hint that that is the problem. And as one commentator has noted, the veggies that Daniel wanted the freedom to eat instead would have likewise been offered up to the Babylonian deities. <clears throat> I think the The temptation is a bit more subtle than that. Maybe you could say even a bit more modern. Nebuchadnezzar is softening up these young people from Israel that they might have what we might call a taste of the good life. It wasn't the food per se, but it wouldn't be hard, would it, to get used to the delicacies of the king's table. Even to the point that you might not be all that adverse to some real compromise in order to maintain the lifestyle. In order to continue this sumptuous lifestyle, one might well be tempted to only hum the songs of Zion in a foreign land. Daniel recognized he might be paralyzed from speaking for the Lord in Babylon. You you can almost hear some of his companions, his fellow exiles, as he refused to eat the meat of the king's table. Come on, Daniel. It won't do you any harm. You can well imagine the jokes going around among the exiles, among his contemporaries who had come from Jerusalem with him. The subtle little pressures which can break the person who has no real sense of God's hand upon them. The snide remarks, Daniel thinks he's better than us. Daniel is a goody two-shoes. Oh, and worst of all, Daniel has the attitude of a holier-than-thou. When in reality, 
he was being aware of the ways in which the powers of darkness could overtake him. He was aware of the dangers, the remonstrance that we, uh, we often give when someone challenges us on how we are living, when we're maybe a little too tied to the, the good taste, the little taste of the good life. <clears throat> we might say something like, there's nothing wrong with it. And you know something, at one level, that's true. Oftentimes, that's true. And that at one level, that we shouldn't make the mistake, as Paul would tell us in the New Testament, that any particular food, in Paul's mind, whether offered to idols or not, is, is evil in and of itself. It is the gift of God. <clears throat> but what we find, and I think that Daniel's pointing out, is that we never necessarily seem to ask the question, is there something right about it? Will it edify me? Will it edify others? Or will it as Daniel apparently recognized with the king's delicacy, will it enslave me? The powers of darkness too often persuade us, causing us to say, there's no harm in it, and blind us to the question, is there any substantial good in it? Daniel saw the ways the powers of darkness sought to corrupt him. Daniel also saw the ways the power of darkness sought to indoctrinate him. And we see that also in these verses. Verse 5, Daniel and his fellow Jewish captives were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Wow. A full scholarship. A free ride to, quite frankly, what might have been the pinnacle of educational institutions in that part of the world at that point in history. Three years of training so that at the end he would have a guaranteed job in the civil service of Babylon, which was the job to have in Babylon. A free pass to become a, a high-ranking civil servant, to have a seat maybe in the hanging gardens of Nebuchadnezzar. Do you see what's going on here? It's almost as if Satan is saying, I don't need to be in any big hurry. Just give me three years in which I can begin to burn through their basic ways of thinking. Just give me three years in which the program will be based on the, the literature 
and the language of Babylon. Give me three years in which I can subtly indoctrinate them into Babylonian ways of thinking instead of Jerusalem ways of thinking. Three years, and these people will be mine. Can you see what evil he has in view? Satan was not only the immediate power, <clears throat> excuse me, Satan has not only the immediate power that will be his when Daniel, if he does so, became indoctrinated with the gods and literatures of Babylon. But if any of Daniel's compatriots or Daniel himself can be indoctrinated, and if some of them were to return again finally to Jerusalem, what kind of leadership would they provide? Would they be fit to lead the people of Zion, the people of God? Daniel as he record, he, he records God's sovereign rule in all things, is also profoundly aware of the powers of darkness. I think he's an example to us there. We should not be blind to where we live and the subtleties of the evil one. It is easy to get carried away with what a great person of faith Daniel is and exhort one and all to follow the example of Daniel. In other words, dared to be a Daniel. I think if it were Daniel standing here this morning, it would be really cool. But I think if he were giving this sermon to us, he would quickly turn us away from such an emphasis. Now, I want to be careful. It's not that Daniel is not a good example of someone with faith in God. He certainly is. He is an extraordinary godly example. I was talking with Rob about this a couple of days ago as we were a little bit going over the the sermon, Wait, uh, looking to be correct, no. But, but, I, but we talked about many of the great people of biblical history who were set before us as examples, who were part of uh, Hebrews 11, that great chapter of faith. And if we go down that list of the, the big names, we say, yeah, but you know something? Interesting how the Bible doesn't let us forget they were human like us. And we, we've seen their foibles, David's, David's uh, liaison with Bathsheba and the murder of Bathsheba's husband. Abraham uh, wanting to pass off his wife to Pharaoh to protect his own life. You, you could go down the list. It is interesting that Daniel seems to be the one example given to us in biblical history that we really never get to see his dark side. I suspect it was there, and I suspect Daniel would own up to it. But the book of Daniel is without those things. Daniel is 
a godly example for us to follow. But again, I think he would be quick to point out uh, the moral of this story is not ultimately his great faith. The moral of the story is the great faithfulness of his God. So if in Daniel we see a young man who was conscious of the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, who was shaping his destiny, and if in Daniel we, we see a person who had a unique sense of the powers of darkness and the manner of their activity, the final thing we need to see is the faithfulness of Daniel's God. If you read the book of Daniel, the whole story of Daniel oozes with this message. But we see it in some very specific ways in our text before us this morning. First, we see, we read in verse 9, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel is ready to take a stand against the subtle ways of Babylon, but the Lord is at work. He has smoothed the way with Daniel's keeper. His willingness to listen to Daniel's plea was not because Daniel was so eloquent or because he was impressed with Daniel's grasp of good eating habits. It was because God was at work softening his heart toward Daniel. <clears throat> of course, the outcome of this 10-day trial was also the faithful hand of God. <clears throat> In no way is this triumph of his 10-day trial a triumph of veganism or what we might call a healthy living style. <clears throat> Notice what the text says in verse 15. <clears throat> Speaking of Daniel and his three cohorts, they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the Jews who ate the king's food. You see, the ancient values were very different from our modern ones. Today, we go on vegan diets so that we can be lean and mean. Well, or at least lean. That's the impact of eating that way. But in the ancient world, what they were looking for was fat and sleek. Someone who was a, a little bit plump, who was sort of full-faced, whose hair was slicked back, was a person who pictured prosperity and health. Not exactly how we understand it today. And so the success of Daniel's proposal to his Babylon keepers was due to God's faithfulness you might say in spite of what he ate. The second example of God's faithfulness, you notice, 
is found in verses 17 through 20. And I just want to read again for you verse 17 and verse 20. I will skip 18, 18 and 19. <clears throat> As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. God gave all four of them exceptional knowledge and understanding of Babylonian literature. The interesting thing here is when he talks about their wisdom, it's not just greater, not just 10 times greater than the others who have gone through the training with them. It's 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters, the magi of Babylon, which Babylon was famous for. They were 10 times better than all the others. God was faithful, dramatically so, in their lives. We are so familiar <clears throat> with the stories of Daniel and his three friends that we may fail to realize the remarkable work of God's faith faithfulness that their testimony was. And I think as a result, one of the we miss the comfort and, and encouragement that we can gain from their lives. If God could keep these young men faithful to him in their situation, he can surely keep us faithful. No matter how overwhelming our situation may seem, God is able to see us through it. It is his work from beginning to end, and he will accomplish it. There is one more surprising note of God's faithfulness in this chapter, and it's found in the very last verse. And it may not resonate with you at first reading, but here's what it says. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, to fill in some of the blanks, the first year of King Cyrus was the year in which the decree was issued, which allowed the Israelites that wanted to, to return to the promised land. Seventy years it has been. Seventy years Daniel and his friends had been in Babylon. God's faithfulness proved sufficient for the whole period of the exile. Babylonian kings came and went. In fact, the Babylonian Empire itself was replaced by the Medo-Persians in the person of Cyrus the Great. God sustained his faithful, faithful servant throughout the whole of time. 
and the lesson that we need to hear that needs to sort of penetrate beyond our, our mind into our heart and souls is that no matter how intense the trial may be, or no, no matter how long it may last, when the world has done its worst, God is faithful enough. As I think about Daniel, as I he- hear this and preach it to myself, there comes to me one problem in all this. The reality is that for most of us, that when we look at our lives, we find that we are not like Daniel and his three friends. Maybe we are are more like the nameless multitude of Israelites who were deported along with Daniel, who ate the king's food and in general became like the Babylonians. In many respects, we are assimilated to the world system in which we live. Too often, our futures are mortgaged to it. So if the message of this book is simply be like Daniel and all will be well, we might as well stop right now. We're not Daniels. But the good news of the gospel is not simply that God is faithful to those who are extraordinarily faithful to him. The gospel is that the Savior has come to save faithless and compromised saints like us, compromised saints like Peter, who denied Jesus three times as he was on the way to the cross. Our salvation rests not on our ability to remain undefiled by the world. Rather, it rests on the pure and undefiled sacrifice that Jesus has provided in our place. God's faithfulness is seen not only in what he does to keep his promises, but in Jesus Christ, he pays for the unfaithfulness of his people. We can sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land. Because in Christ, we know that we have an inheritance that cannot perish, kept in heaven for us. Let us pray.